Once again, it's a privilege and an honor to bring God's word to you this evening. And um, time is moving very rapidly, so uh, without further delay, please turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Correction, let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. We're going to read the first uh, uh, first, uh, 12 verses in Matthew chapter 6. Before reading God's word, uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we bless you this evening for the providence, or for the goodness of your providence, because today we find ourselves yet in the here and now, and not in the consummation of your kingdom. And we thank you for your mercy, for your goodness. It tells us that we still have to preach the gospel to all nations. And this evening we ask you for your spirit to open up our hearts, our stubborn hearts, so that we may obey uh, your will through the preaching of your word. And we thank you for your word as a especially the proclamation of your word as a principal means of grace. We also ask for those who do not believe that you may bring salvation to their hearts through your preached word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is God's very own word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the word of the Lord. 
This evening we continue with the series on the Lord's Prayer. In verse 12 of this passage, we encounter the fifth uh, petition. As in the preface and the previous uh, four petitions, uh, this verse contains the richness of the gospel of God's uh, free and invincible grace. In other words, this verse provides another proof that the Lord's Prayer is uniquely Christian and evangelical. So let us take a look at verse 12 again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The first thing I would like to do in analyzing this verse is to to begin by providing a theologically rich and 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 biblical perspective of the extent of our indebtedness to God. In other words, the Bible teaches us that the debt of our sin is infinite. The verse uses a common Jewish metaphor, which is borrowed from the business field of uh, accounting to describe sinners as debtors. And the evidence of this is found in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you, forgive your trespasses. It is important to understand that at the moment God created humanity in his image, we were to respond in perfect obedience to his will as morally responsible agents. However, our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed to respond in this way. As a result of their rebellion, we inherited the guilt of their rebellion. And together with their guilt, and together with their guilt and our actual sins, we incur an infinite debt to God. Some of you might ask why this debt is infinite. Uh, Briefly, the scriptures teach that God is infinite in his being. In particular, as it relates to this verse, God is infinite in his justice. He is infinite in his mercy. We have sinned against an infinite God, which requires that his infinite justice be satisfied. However, he is also infinitely merciful and forgiving. It has been asked on many occasions since God's uh, forgiveness is infinite, why doesn't he just simply overlook our sins and simply state, I infinitely forgive you. There's a passage from the Old Testament that I would like you to turn to at this time to find out whether God can take this approach of just uttering words of forgiveness. Please turn with me to Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. That's Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And in this passage, God addresses the children of Israel. And as you will see in these verses, he speaks of judgment. But he also speaks of his uh, mercy, starting in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with bands, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. But they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bar of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. Notice the intense mixed feelings God is expressing in verses 8 to 9. Notice the tension between his, his just wrath and his compassion as described by the questions he poses. Of course, this language is to be taken as anthropomorphic language. That is, in a language that we can identify with. The Reformed scholar theologian Horatius Bonar explains this apparent uh, tension in this manner. God is a father, but he is no less a judge. Shall the judge give way to the father, or the father give way to the judge? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Shall he sink his love to the sinner in his hatred of the sin? Or his hatred of the sin in his love to the sinner? Which is the more unchangeable and irreversible, the vow of pity or the oath of justice? Law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else... The pillars of the universe will be shaken. Some contemporary Christian writers would describe this Hosea passage in the following terms. Is it possible for God to sacrifice his justice on the altar of his mercy? Is it possible for God to sacrifice his mercy on the altar of his justice? In other words, can God stop being God? Can he stop who he is infinitely in his being? But more specifically related to this passage, can he stop being infinitely just and merciful? But this is utterly inconceivable. This is utterly unthinkable. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. The universe will collapse because God will cease to be God. So hence, we observe the necessity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And notice in this passage, 
He withholds His just wrath to His people. So where does He localize His wrath? In particular, the utter necessity of Christ crucified is what's necessary, which leads us to our second point, main point. It is only in the cross where both God's infinite justice and mercy are harmoniously displayed. This is the only way that God can bring us from being damnable debtors to forgiven sinners. And this is unique among all religions. There are no gods that have been worshipped in the history of humanity where infinite justice and infinite mercy were simultaneously and efficaciously exercised like the God of the Christian faith. As many of you know, as a nation, we are in 18, about $18 trillion in debt. However, as individual sinners, we do not owe $18 trillion As sinners, we owe an infinite amount, and hence, an unpayable amount to his justice. This was the cost of our guilt and the cost of our sins. It is an unpayable cost. Only the true and living God who created us in his image, as we saw in the Shorter Catechism questions 21 and 22 this evening, It is only the true and living God who created us in his image, incarnated himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This tells us something about the infinite cost of forgiveness. It was utterly necessary that Christ become man and perfectly obey God in his human nature. In this way, he was able to bear the infinite cost of our sins in his perfect obedience in his life and death. He became in our place the only debtor who can pay for our sins through substitution. As God who is infinite in his being, in a way we cannot fully grasp, he places infinite value to the death of Christ. And this is what Paul's main point in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, whom he put forward to appease God's wrath, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see on the cross, we see on the cross God's pouring out his wrath and his justice, his, his wrath and, and his mercy. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe in this message? Have you opened the hands of your faith to receive the full, perfect, and infinite pardon of God in Christ Jesus? Briefly, I would like to take the liberty to add as a side note that in in light of Pope Francis' first visit to our nation, it is well worth repeating what is at stake when it comes to God's infinite justice and mercy. In Roman Catholicism, they believe that you can fall from the state of grace, especially when committing the the so-called immortal sins. They have established an an elaborate system of sacraments by which you need to add works to faith to be restored in a state of grace or to be restored, in other words, in a state of pardon, as it were. But look with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Where it says here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As one commentator has observed, it is notable to point out the absence of the word mercy in verse 9. And it's notable to to, to point out the presence of the word just. It's also instructed that it says faithful and just. Faithful and just. Because as we have learned, God's infinite justice has been satisfied and cannot be reversed. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, salvation according to Rome is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ's death alone. Rome puts us in the lamentable predicament of double jeopardy. That is to say, puts God in the position of charging us again for our sins. But God's infinite pardon declares us to be unprosecutable. We are unprosecutable. Based on the sole and singular righteousness of Christ alone, imputed. Again, the language of commerce or or bookkeeping, record keeping. Christ is... Righteousness alone has been credited to our account, which we receive by the hands of faith alone. We are declared not guilty once and for all in Christ. Also, this is inconsistent with the paternal compassion we saw in Hosea chapter 11. And also, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Our Father comes to us as a compassionate Father. He does not come to us as a wrathful judge in Christ. You see, this relationship of Father and we as His children cannot be severed, and it cannot be severed even by sin itself. 
In light of this truth of God's infinite pardon, we arrive at the third and last main point of this petition of the Lord's Prayer. God's infinite pardon in Christ has shuttled us from infinite debtors to infinitely forgiven to becoming forgiving. That is, this petition teaches us to be forgiving. And I would just like to mention at least a couple things regarding this. It appears to teach, as we see in verse 12 in Matthew chapter 6, if you notice again, if you turn back, it appears to teach, as it says here, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It appears to teach a tit-for-tat theology of forgiveness in this passage. That is to say, we, if we forgive, then the Lord will forgive us. However, Paul provides some clarity to this verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Please turn there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In the, in the, in the Greek language, uh, the original Greek in this verse, is conveying the language of commerce or the language of record keeping. And if you um, owed a certain amount to a creditor and you paid off that, that full amount, uh, what the creditor would do was issue like a, a, a permissory note. And he would further um, nail this permissory note to, to a makeshift uh, board. And on that permissory note would say, Paid in full. You see, this is what Christ does on the cross for us. Paid in full. However, the thought is also additionally clarified by Paul in, in the next chapter in Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes here, but put on then, put on then rather, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So this is the thought. This is the petition of, Roman, of Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. This is the thought that is trying to convey, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is not a tit-for-tat theology of forgiveness. I remember as a, a child growing up, and um, as, as all of us have been one uh, time or another been reprimanded for not apologizing, and I remember, the, I can clearly remember as a child, the first few times I was uh, told to apologize, I just had a, a, just a deep, visceral resistance to forgive, to apologize. What this passage is telling us is through divine forgiveness and also our relationship to, to God as new creature, new creatures rather in, in, in Christ. 
that divine forgiveness must automatically flow through us. See? For Christ has delivered us and pardoned us from our guilt, but he also has liberated us from the dominion of sin. However, he has not yet delivered us from the presence of sin. And many of us will continue to struggle. Perhaps you are struggling with pardoning for, and forgiving, especially long-term commitments. Perhaps forgiving your spouse for recurrent sins or offenses, rather. Perhaps dealing with your children or even perhaps the family of God as we offend one another. This is what, pre, what is presupposed back in 1 John chapter 1. If we deny that we have sin, we have made God out to be a liar, it says. So if we struggle with sin, what is instructive here is that we need to incorporate this petition as part of our daily prayer. This is a means of God's grace, this petition. Incorporating this prayer as part of our daily prayer. Meditating on the richness of God's forgiveness in the gospel as it is offered to us in Christ. You see, as we continue to contemplate what divine forgiveness is, we would grow more and more in forgiving one another. You see, because our, our sins that we commit with one another is compared to our sin to God is, is, is rather little. See, because we're not infinite beings, but he is. So if a God who is greater than we are freely in Christ pardon us, how much more we will, not, will we not practice forgiveness in our own lives? My opinion is a Christian who does not live a life of forgiveness is a ridiculous Christian. It is a grotesque-looking Christian who does not exercise Forgiveness in his life. You see. Finally, this passage should teach us as God has demonstrated to us in Isaiah chapter 43, 25, where God says in that verse, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And here we have another example of anthropomorphic language, language that we can understand. Of course, God cannot forget, right? It is not in his nature to forget. But rather... I think a clue to what it means for God not to remember our sins and also for us to incorporate this way of thinking is found in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, 
You see, that's part of forgiveness. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, we have to forgive as God forgives. It is to say, as many have uh, expressed in this manner, I must be predisposed, I I have to be ready to not remember your sins committed against me. I must be committed to say, I will not bring up your sin and use it against you. You see? And this is what God does in divine pardon. His pardon is infinite. And he tells us in Christ, I will not use your sins against you. You see? So we see God's infinite and irreversible pardon in Christ. And as and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And the people of the Lord say, Amen.